Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. If you're like me, you're torn today, pulled in two directions. On the one hand, you want to let your heart sing and your soul celebrate the fact that it feels like spring out there. But then on the other hand, you're like, wait a minute, Douglas. This, you don't call yourself Douglas, probably, I guess. But you, you substitute another name. Wait a minute, Douglas. Uh, it's February. It's not just February. It's the very first week of February. So I've been saying to myself all week, Brian, don't get your hopes up. Don't get your hopes up. You know this is not the end of winter. It's only uh, you know penalty, false start on the winter, five-yard penalty, repeat first down. <laughs> Last week, we started a semester-long look at the Old Testament. I said, why, why the Old Testament? Why should we focus there? I said, we, we often don't know the Old Testament as well as we think or wish we did. Now, including myself in that, I'm not just like pointing the finger and saying, people out there, those, those folk don't understand, you know, know the Old Testament like they should. I, I'm including myself. I don't understand the Old Testament, know it like I should. We know a handful of stories, but how, how much of it, percentage-wise, do we actually know? Uh, and then also, even, even what we do know about the Old Testament, how often do we, do we know what to do with it when we read it? Right? It's, a, it's a world that's so different from our own. There are so many strange stories and details and things that happen in the Old Testament. And so that's why uh, here in the spring, I want to spend some time looking at the Old Testament uh, together and see if we can see it a little more clearly and use it a little better. So last week, uh, I gave you principle number one. Does anyone remember what it is? Somebody whispered. No. <laughs> <laughs> the principle number one, in terms of reading the Old Testament and understanding it, we need to understand that the Old Testament is not about us. And, you know, I kind of use the analogy, we're not the main character in the story. Uh, very often when we read the stories in the Old Testament, we kind of want to make the beeline to, therefore, I should fill in the blank, right? And we kind of want to make the story kind of primarily about us, or, or first about us. Uh, God told me about, uh, about Moses in the wilderness in the 40 years before, while he's out there tending the sheep so that I would learn that when I'm in my wilderness, uh, don't worry, God's, I mean, there, there may be a valid point there, but is that really what I'm supposed to first and foremost know about the Old Testament? See, that's kind of what I'm saying. Uh, somebody saying that, the, that, that we're the main character in the Old Testament would be like somebody saying, if you really wanted to understand Macbeth, you'd watch those secondary characters. You'd pay attention to Lennox or Donald Bane or Banquo. And, and what they do is far more important than what Macbeth himself does in the play. And I would say, no, you, you really just cannot understand the story of a book or of a play or of anything without focusing your attention where? On the main character. And the main character in the Old Testament is Jesus, believe it or not. He's the main character in the Old Testament. In Luke 24, 27, he says here that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's there all the time. He's the main character. And if we fail to see that, then we will miss the whole point of the Old Testament. That's kind of one of the theses that I'm, I'm working from here uh, as we look at the Old Testament together. In a minute, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 and begin where the main character begins, in the beginning. Uh, but before we do, I want to give you principle number two for how we read the Old Testament. I'm not going to give you a principle every week, but
But the first few weeks, I expect there'll be a few things that we definitely need to remember and pay attention to. I'm gonna, call, I'm gonna warn you up front. Principle number two, your, your first reaction to it is gonna be, well, duh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Principle number two, the Old Testament is intended to teach us. That may sound like a bit of a duh statement, but hold on a minute. Let me ask you, who wrote the Old Testament? Who wrote, say, let's just say, for example, the book of Jeremiah? Who wrote that? God. God did in some sense, uh, but who literally put a pen down on a piece of paper and, or, or, or not paper, they didn't use paper then. Uh, who put the pen on the paper and wrote something down? Well, I mean, it begins by saying these were the words of Jeremiah. And it's always been understood that, you know, the writer in some sense at least, Jeremiah, even if he dictated it or something like that, was Jeremiah. And who was the book of Jeremiah written to? Was it written to you? No. Who was it written for originally? Well, Jeremiah was a prophet. He was speaking to God's people, the nation of Israel, centuries before Christ, right? It was written in a particular place and time. It was written to them, and it was not written directly to us. I mean, Jeremiah does not begin by saying, to all the Christians in America in, 20, in the 21st century. He doesn't begin by saying that, you see? And so the, the key word in this is us. The key word is us. The Old Testament is intended to teach us. I mean, I think we should ask, we should question that. We should say, is it really meant to teach us? I live so far after the fact. Is this book really written for me? You see, I think that's a valid question. Let me explain you, to you what I mean. Imagine if you received a letter. Imagine if I received a letter. Uh, say that it was this letter. And say that I am Mrs. Thompson, just for the sake of argument. <laughs> Uh, imagine if I, I picked up this envelope and I read the front of it and I said, why in the world would anyone write me something when they could just say it to me? And then I took the letter and I threw it away without opening it. What would you think about that? You, somebody said foolish. I heard that. You called me a fool. I know. I heard that. Uh, but would that, be, would that be a sensible thing to do? Why wouldn't it be? What's nonsensical about what I said? I said, why in the world would anyone write me something when they could just say it to me? And then I throw it away. See, that only makes sense. It only makes sense for someone to take the time to write something out instead of saying it to me, because it would be easier to say it, right? It only makes sense to write it down if, you're, if, you, if you want a couple things to happen. Number one, you want somebody to remember it, okay? And then number two, very most importantly, if I'm writing someone a letter and putting it in the mail, it's implicit that they are not standing right next to me. They're, they're separated from me by space and time. If they're going to read something that I wrote, they're going to read it days later in a different place. You see, space and time is involved. Uh, it only makes sense to write a letter if the person that you're writing it for is not right in front of you. That's when the con that's the context that begins to make the whole thing make sense. You see, here's my point, is that the act of writing itself shows that an author intends to say something to people who are not present with them in that time and place. Does that make sense? 
So the fact that, that Jeremiah gets he could have just gone out on his balcony and said, hey, people of Israel, listen. But instead, he's writing it down. Why? Because he knows that somebody in the future is going to read it. Do you think that's a biblical idea? Well, let me show you why I think it's a biblical idea. In 1 Peter 3, uh, I'm sorry, that should be 1 Peter 1, verse 12. I'll correct that. Uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 12. In, in that context of that passage, he, he's talking about the people who wrote about in the Old Testament era, the things about Christ, the gospel, the things that were to come. And here he says, uh, and he elaborates on this a little further, but I really want to just zero in on this. He says, it was revealed to them, the writers of scripture, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you. Now, Peter's writing this in the first century AD. Uh, the last prophet of the Old Testament Malachi wrote in what century, do you know? Four centuries before Christ. So Peter's writing nearly 500 years after the last Old Testament prophet. Nearly half a millennium later, he's saying, those people knew that they were writing not for themselves, their own context, but they were writing for you. Centuries later, to hear about Jesus context of this passage. He's talking all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that's true of them back then, then it's true of us as well today. So here's principle two. The Old Testament is intended to teach us, not us only. They're, they're, it's not just for 21st century Americans, but it's also for 21st century Americans. Uh, the Old Testament isn't about us. That's principle number one. But it is intended to teach us. And uh, this includes teaching us about ourselves and our world as well. It tells us about more than the main character. We just need to learn in the correct order. The, the key is to learn about the main character first, and then to learn about our, ourselves and our world afterwards. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? OK, that's principle two. So number one was what? It's not about you. But number two, it is? intended to teach us, right? Okay, so let's see what we can learn. We're going to begin our look at the Old Testament with the main character in mind. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's a pretty familiar story. Um, so you, you, you don't need to have your Bible right in front of you if you're pretty familiar with it. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What is the question in Genesis chapter 1, what is you, the question that you hear, the, that you most often hear people asking about Genesis 1? When Genesis 1 comes up and people are talking about it and asking questions, what are the, what are the questions they're usually trying to answer? Is it literal days? Are they literal days and therefore, how old is the earth? I mean, are we talking millions of years? Are we talking thousands of years? Um, billions of years? Can we say trillions? I don't know. You reach a certain point, and it doesn't matter anymore. It's just old. <laughs> but the question, that's right. I mean, the question you most often hear people asking when they read Genesis 1 is, how old is the earth? What's the problem with that question? Nobody was there. Think about our principles. What's the problem with that question? It's a modern question being asked today, right? It's not one that would be phrased in quite that way uh, in another time, maybe. 
right. I mean, there's, there's, there's a sense, I mean, like, if I could apply principle one to it. Now, you know, principle one has got some rhetorical, uh, you know, it's broad and sweeping. But is that what the text is really trying to tell us about? Uh, is the text saying, hey, guys, by the way, if you were ever curious about the age of the earth, uh, here's some facts and figures that you probably ought to keep in mind. Is that the preface? No. What is the preface? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who's the main character in the story? Is the heavens the main character in the story? Is the earth the main character in the story? No. The main character in Genesis chapter 1 is God. And so whatever questions we want to ask from Genesis chapter 1, and it answers all kinds of questions. It addresses so many different things. But what's the first question that we should ask of Genesis chapter 1? What does this chapter teach us about the main character? That's where you start. That's the first question. Genesis chapter 1, uh, Genesis 1-1, one, one, we just read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. According to the Gospel of John, believe it or not, John says, you are supposed to understand from this verse and the, part, the, part, the passages that follow it that the story of Genesis 1 is actually about Jesus. That's what, the, that's what the Apostle John wrote in his gospel. He listened to the first five verses. I'm just going to give you some snapshots out of it. Listen, in the beginning, he starts with the same language intentionally. He wants clearly, anybody in his culture who heard the phrase in the beginning, Genesis 1 would come into their mind instantaneously. And it's, but it's, it's, like, it's like trick questions. See, he's like, in the beginning, and everybody expects him to say, God created the heaven and the earth. And he, but he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. See, where does the world start? Does it start with life? No, it starts with lifelessness. And life emerges due to the actions of God. John saying the word was the one who brought life. Okay, And then he says that he caused light to shine into the darkness in John chapter 1, verse 5. What's that, what is he clearly alluding to when he says, oh, by the way, in the beginning, there was a person who made light come out of darkness. <coughs> He's clearly saying, this guy, Jesus, you, you know the days of creation, reader. You know that on the first day, God separated the light from the darkness? He's saying, that was Jesus. This is about him. So here's, here's the question about Gen Genesis chapter 1 that we should be most interested in asking. Oops. It was, uh, here's the question I thought I had on the next slide. What did God do, and why did he do it? That's what we should be asking. First, in Genesis 1, what did God do and why did he do it? And we can answer this question by looking at the chapter itself. Here in Genesis 1, verse 2, it says the world was without form and void, formless and empty. See, we could rephrase that chaotic and empty, chaos, swirling <laughs> matter. The world was chaotic and empty. What did God do about it? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, there are six days of creation. 
On the first day, God divided. What did he divide? Light and darkness. On the second day, God divided. He did the same thing again. What did he, what did he divide this time? Water from water, right? The water's above, the water's beneath. On the third day, God divided. What did he divide on the third day? He divides the land from the sea, you see? And so he takes this raw material of the universe, and he divides it, and he subdivides it, and he subdivides it. What is it? What is the word for that? Well, he's bringing order to the chaos, you see? The pattern of the first three days of creation is that God is saying, I'm bringing order out of chaos. So what did God do at creation? Well, the first thing he did was he said, well, we're going to take this chaos and we're going to bring order to it. Okay, then what does he do immediately after that? Well, in days four through six, God fills, right? In day four, what does he fill? He creates the sun the moon, the stars. What is he filling? He's filling the light and the darkness. You see how day four and day one link together? He's filling the light and the darkness with sun and moon and stars. Uh, and day five, what is he filling? The waters above and the waters beneath. He makes birds and fish on day five. Can you see how day five and day two connect together? You see? On day six, God fills again. What does he fill this time? The land with animals and all the creatures that creep along the ground, the beasts of the field, and all the phrases that he uses. But he's taking what he divided on day three, and he's filling it on day six, you see? You see how the days are connected? You see how there's a pattern there? Uh, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I, this is like maybe... Uh, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. This is related to principle number three. Uh, but patterns are important in the Bible. God constructs certain things to pattern themselves and repeat themselves and echo each other. And so we have a pattern here in Genesis chapter one. God wants you to notice the two things that he does. He takes a world that is, in verse two is characterized by chaos and emptiness. And over six days, he brings order out of chaos, and he fills everything that is empty. So we'll summarize it that way. What did God do? He, he moved the universe itself from chaotic emptiness to ordered fullness. Here we learn something about who God is and what he values. What does that teach us about God? What do you, how would you put that? He's got power to do the impossible. Because if if, uh, if I handed you a universe of chaos and emptiness and said, all right, you know what to do, what would your, what would your reply be? I don't know what my reply would be. Actually, I don't. I don't know what to do. I, you know, I'm not able to, to handle this. What do we learn about God? Ken? Well, I think that he's creative and he's orderly. Yes. Super creative. Yeah, super I remember... A friend of mine used to say, uh, God could have created a world that was flat and gray, but he didn't. How many different kinds of grass are there in the world? Uh, more than I know. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> what else does this teach us about God? Go ahead. It strikes me that it, um, 
traverses entropy. I mean, everything else about any kind of thing always goes from order to chaos. Right. You reverse that. Right. So God is kind of um, counter entropial. <laughs> I don't. I. That sounds like it could be a real word. I don't know. It should be. If it's not, it has just become one. You all have just borne witness to its beginning. All right. Um, let me tell you, what does this tell us about what God values? What does God value? Order. God likes, does God like order? Is that something we can say? Is that going too far? I don't think so. God likes order. And let's, let's contrast it, okay? God likes order more than chaos. God likes order more than he likes chaos. I think that's true. That would certainly would seem to be one of the key things that Genesis chapter 1 is teaching us. Okay? What else does it tell us? So we got order and chaos, and what's the other paired thing? Fullness. Fullness and emptiness. What does God like? Does God like emptiness? What does emptiness make God do? Maybe you can bring other knowledge of Scripture other passages. You know what emptiness does? God, God, God weeps at emptiness and brokenness and, and failure and shortcoming. This is a, a tragedy that he that hits him close to home. And we see that throughout the scriptures. I'm going to put a new word in here because fullness is uh, is maybe not even quite strong enough. Can I put another word into it? You know what God values? God doesn't value emptiness. God values abundance. I'm going to tell you something. This is true. Never forget this. God loves abundance. And in everything that you see him doing uh, in the history of the Bible is saying, I'm going to create abundance. That's the pattern of how he works. He does not like emptiness. He likes abundance. And so this becomes something like the, uh, the fingerprints of God here. See? Order and abundance. The, the fingerprints of God. When you see order and abundance, either in scripture or in your own life or in the world at large, you're, you're bearing witness to the work of God. That's the mark of who he is, what he loves, and what he does. You know, uh, the seventh day, the day of rest, doesn't fall into uh, chapter one. It's actually part of chapter two. But if we tie the whole week together and we look and we see God doing what with time? He creates very distinct days, right? He sets a pattern. Patterns create order out of chaos, right? One day is not just exactly the same as another. There are patterns and cycles built into time itself. And God has constructed a world in which that is true. But then what does he do on the seventh day? He, on the one hand, he creates order. On the seventh day, he creates abundance, right? He creates space in our lives. Have you, have you ever been one of, you know, you, like, I just wish I had more time in the week. One of the things God has done with the Sabbath day, I'm getting a little off script here. One of the things he's done with the Sabbath day is he's created space for us to say, I'm going to set that, side, that time aside. And, and God's promising us, if we do that, 
we will have the abundance of time we seek. Well, you know, maybe not, not, uh, not the eternal abundance, right? But the weekly one, right? And then there's the Hebrew says there's a Sabbath rest ahead of us still, the eternal rest, the eternal abundance of time, right? So those are those are some things that are happening in the, in the first week. Go ahead, Rick. I think there's something even more fundamental that shows that God has an intentionality and teleology behind His. So purpose. This is driving in a direction. <coughs> That's what those two words mean: intention, intentionality, and teleology. Uh, God is designing a world that's moving in a direction. It's not just sort of there doing its thing, but there's, there's something pointed in a particular direction. Let me ask you. Here we go. Then at the at the end of creating everything else in the world, he's already he's already made order and fullness and abundance and uh, everything out of the chaos that was the universe. Uh, he's, he's imposed his stamp on it, and it's now orderly and chaos. At the end of it, God does something he didn't have to do. See, there's all kinds of beasts on the field, uh, things that crawl on the ground, birds in the air, fish in the seas. Uh, he's got the fullness of both uh, air, land, and sea, and then he creates something else. What does he create? Last thing. In uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 20 through 28, we read this. Uh, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then he says, we're going to put him over all of the other animals, beasts of, feet, beasts of the field, birds of the air, etc. And God, so God created man in his image, and the image of God he created him. It says it twice to emphasize it. And then it says, male and female he created them, lest there be any ambiguity about whether one of the sexes somehow bears God's image more than the other. They're equal here in this passage. Both male and female, he created them in the image of God. And then God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Okay? What has God created here? Can I say this is maybe an odd way of phrasing it, but but think carefully about this. God has created a God-like creature. See? He's intentionally creating him in his own image. There's some kind of reflection of God in the created realm as soon as God creates humanity. Right? There's a God-like creature. And what does God tell that God-like creature to do? Yeah! Yeah, exactly the same thing hidden. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. What does subdue mean? Bring order out of chaos. What does fill mean? To bring abundance out of emptiness, right? And so he creates a godlike creature and tells him, go and do the things that I would do, right? Go and do the things that you've seen me, already seen me do. Or not seen, you weren't there, but I'm, you can see my fingerprints. You know, you know the shape of stuff that I do. Go and do it. That's exactly what's happening here. God is creating this image of himself meant to reflect God himself. Okay. That's kind of like this. There's DNA. Uh, and there's also an RNA strand. And that's all technical looking and whatnot. And I don't understand any of it. So if you do, awesome. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know something about DNA. Where do we find DNA? In every cell. It's in every, the, every cell of every living being on the face of the earth has some kind of DNA in it. 
and you know what it is. It's this uh, spiraling genetic code sequences of uh, four, these four things uh, on the left-hand column that you see those four molecules, sequences of them that basically determine an awful lot about you, right? What, do we, what about you is shaped by your DNA? I mean like eye color, hair color, skin color, shape of yourself, like your jaws, how, how does this work? Your jaws shape is, de is, is, is determined by the DNA encoding of your cells, okay? Uh, the, 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 your predisposition to certain diseases, to certain mental diseases, uh, so much of this is DNA related and you can ask real experts on those things if you wanna know more about them. Uh, so just as God designed human beings with, with DNA to define their biophysical selves, right? Just as God gave human beings DNA to define their biophysical selves, he also defined them morally and spiritually as creatures who reflect and, and continue his work of turning chaotic emptiness into ordered fullness. That's what he, spiritually and morally, it's the DNA he gave them. He made them in his image and said, go do what I do. Right? But what happened? You know what happened. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because this is really more about Genesis chapter 3. But let me put this up here for you. Damaged DNA. This illustration actually comes from the effects of sunshine. Uh, you know, like you know, harmful UV radiation on the DNA inside your skin cells. <coughs> Right? But the principle is the same. Some kind of external force comes and inter, inter, interacts with the, the healthy DNA cell. And do you see how this one is breaking apart and reforming itself into a new shape? Now see, universally, when that happens, the effects of that are negative. If you suddenly have a cell that's supposed to, in my skin, to say, for example, who's supposed to be doing certain kinds of things, and all of a sudden it changes its uh, operations and does a whole different set of things. Uh, it's, it's not doing what it's supposed to, where it's supposed to be. See? Uh, it's going to have a damaging effect on my skin. So what happens when a cell's DNA is changed? One of two things happens. Either it's changed so that that cell cannot survive the environment that it's in. Uh, the, the functions it has break down and that cell at some point dies and is just sort of cleared away by your body. Or the cell does what? Repair itself. It begins, it can either repair, that's the third option, it can repair itself, which does happen sometimes. But assuming it doesn't repair itself, if it doesn't die off, what does it do? Say it begins to thrive in that environment. Well, then it begins to reproduce. And when the cell begins to reproduce and you get more and more of them in that area, what do we call that? That's definition, that's cancer. And so cancer is a clump of cells that's in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. And it becomes not a blessing to us, but a detriment. It begins to tear us apart. Uh, it begins to undo all the good that the cell previously did uh, before its DNA got, got damaged. So as we will see later in Genesis chapter 3, this is what happens to humanity. That their spiritual DNA, not just their biophysical DNA, but their spiritual DNA became damaged. And they did not do what they were intended to do. And they, they began to turn it backwards, you see. 
they began to take order and fullness, the order and fullness that God had created, and they began to reverse that back into chaos and emptiness. You see, they began to work backwards, counter to the way God himself works and the way he created the universe to function. You see, I, th I think that is a, an important way to look out at the world and understand there, is, there are cells out there with bad DNA. And that explains an awful lot about what's happening in the world. Well, we'll, we'll talk more about that. The cancer began to spread post-Adam and Eve. And that really is the story of Genesis 1. These, two, these, these are the themes being developed. The tension between the two. What God does is introduced in Genesis chapter 1. And then what humans are supposed to do that's the contrast that is set, set, set before us in Genesis chapter 1. But there's one more thing that Genesis chapter 1 teaches that we, we should be careful not to miss. One more thing. Here it is. What God did at the beginning, he can do again. You see, you look out at the world and you say, this is a mess. There is a lot of chaos and emptiness out there. But there's only one solution is for the creator to be the recreator and to bring order and fullness and abundance out of the chaos that we bear witness to with our eyes. And that's the story that the Bible's going to develop. But you see, it's right here in Genesis chapter 1. Here's how God created things. He, here's how he works. And he created creatures that have a DNA to work like he works. And they flipped it around 180 degrees and they began to undermine his act of creation. So what's the solution to that? He must recreate. You see? And we'll visit some of these themes again. As obviously, throughout the Old Testament, we will visit these themes. But we'll follow up with this. Next week, we will look at Genesis chapters 2 and 3. If you want to read those uh, ahead of time, I'm going to try to... A great suggestion last week uh, was, hey, let us know what passages we're going to look at the following week so that if you want to read them in the meantime, you can. So next week, Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Uh, is what we're going to look at. <clears throat> I think that's like the, the best thing I said today. That's my favorite part of this lesson, is what he did at the beginning, he can do again. He's the God of order and abundance. Don't lose sight of that. Okay. Uh, we, we, we will end where, uh, where, we, where we have been lately with sort of a three, three different applications based on three different kinds of people. How should I use what I've learned today if I'm not a Christian? Let me start there. Um, let me ask you, if you're not a Christian, what do you think about the Apostle Peter's claim that the Old Testament writers knew that they were writing for readers who were centuries into the future? What do you think of that? Does that strike you as plausible? I, I really do absolutely understand how it might, it might be easy to be skeptical about that. It might be easy to quickly dismiss that idea. No one can know that, right? That what I'm writing down today is going to be used by people centuries in the future. No one can know that, right? But think about this. The only way to believe that such a grand, overarching, centuries-in-the-making plan couldn't be true, just can't be true, the only way to really know that for sure is if you have a grand, overarching, bird's-eye view of the whole business. 
somehow we can transcend our own space and time and, and get a high enough view above everything to look at the big picture enough to know that there really isn't a big picture. I mean, really to say that's not possible is to say, guys, I actually, I've been to the top of the mountain, I looked down at the valley, and I saw that there was nothing in the valley. But I mean, that's assuming, that's a big assumption to say I've made it to the top of the mountain. So I would say, uh, I wonder if any of us can really climb high enough above everything else to know that everything is really just chaos. That's just a question that I have, but I think anyone who is skeptical about such a claim uh, should ponder. Something that they should consider. I mean, I, if you say, well, yeah, but, I would love to, to come and tell me the yeah, but. I'd love to have that conversation. I would love to talk to you more about that. Okay? If you're a new Christian, or if you're a veteran Christian, I'm going to roll those together today and say the same thing to both of you. I'd like to say this. If you're already a Christian, you know that you've already, you've already experienced the pain that comes from living in a world with cancerous spiritual DNA. You've already experienced that. It's hard to know which hurts the most when we're experiencing the fallenness of the world, whether it's the things that get hurled at us from the outside or whether it's the garbage that we find welling up from within. And if you're a Christian, you already understand that. You, you know that... Uh, not only that the, 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 the broken cancer spiritual DNA is true, but you also know that Jesus is going to fix that. I mean, you wouldn't be a Christian if you hadn't said, yeah, I think Jesus can fix that. And what I just really want to say to you is, like, don't lose sight. The pain sometimes is so enormous, the confusion is so great sometimes, that it becomes easy to lose sight of the fact that the story here, the story that we are living in, despite what our eyes sometimes tell, tell us, is not a story that begins with order and fullness and ends in chaos and emptiness. That's not the story God is writing in the Bible. It's not the story he's writing in the world. And it's not, if you are in Christ, it is not the story he's writing with your life. The story that God is telling of you is a story of chaos that ends in order. A story of emptiness that ends in abundance. Don't lose sight, even on the worst days. Don't lose heart. Okay? God be with us and help us to see things clearly, even when our eyes can. Spirit of God, show us what we need to know and encourage us as we need to be encouraged. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.